You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Jenna Hollenstein. Jenna is a nutrition therapist, meditation teacher, and certified intuitive eating counselor. Jenna is also the author of three books, including her most recent one called Intuitive Eating for Life, How Mindfulness Can Deepen and Sustain Your Own Intuitive Eating Practice. And as if Jenna being a guest isn't exciting enough, I'm really excited to announce that we are having our first giveaway on the show today, thanks to Jenna, because she has graciously promised to send three full and thriving listeners a free copy of her latest book, that comes out on December 1st. How exciting is that? So to win one of the copies, please leave an honest review of the podcast and tag or message me on Instagram, which is at Meg underscore McCabe, with a screenshot of your review. Jenna gifted her book to me in advance and I devoured it cover to cover. It is seriously a beautiful book and it will definitely help you sustain your intuitive eating practice. So thank you in advance for participating in the contest. I wish you all the best of luck. And of course, I know that you're going to enjoy this episode of the show with Jenna. Hi, Jenna. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I just finished reading your new book and It's been really eye-opening for me, and I can't wait to talk to you all about it. I'm excited to talk about it, too. You know, it's been a couple of months since I worked on it, so just to bring up some of those old thoughts and, you know, lines of exploration, I'm excited, too. Mm -hmm. So what was it like for you writing Intuitive Eating for Life? I think writing books has become a little bit of a compulsion for me. I really love to find a topic, identify a framework to explore it through, and then just hang out in that space. Mm -hmm. And so the framework, obviously, like in recent years, my obsession has been the overlap, the complementary nature of intuitive eating and mindfulness and meditation. And the framework that I used for this book was the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, feelings, thoughts, and phenomena. Mm. And what I love about that is the emphasis on the body, because the more I do this work, the more I meditate, the more I realize we have this sort of like weird fascination with transcending our humanness Mm. and how if there were such a thing as enlightenment, I think it actually comes with 
fully inhabiting our bodies. Like our bodies are the vehicle. They're not the obstacle. They're not something we need to overcome or overpower. And so just really exploring mindfulness of body, which I consider to be the beginning, middle and end of Mm -hmm. recovery work. Yes. Because of the emotional connections, the emotions that we experience in the body, they're not separate from the body. Right. That was really exciting to me. And, you know, we are our bodies and we're more than our bodies, Mm. but there's something about cultivating like a warmth and an affection and an appreciation for these bodies that allows us to have the meaningful, you know, lives that we seem to want to have, you know, not treating them like they're the things in the way. Right. I just love how you shared that because it's so true how there's this focus on transcending the body, being beyond the body, more than the body, which we are more than our bodies, right? But that kind of language also kind of minimizes how the body can be so helpful in maybe reaching a point of enlightenment if that exists or deepening your connection with yourself. I agree. And exploring the idea of an innately intelligent body that's like in constant communication with you might end up serving as like the compass in life. You know, like if you are figuring out if you want to go in this direction or that direction, maybe it's not such a mental exercise. Like maybe your nervous system actually has something to say about what direction you go in. And so if you sort of practice looking at your body with this framework that it is wise and that it is always protecting you, that it does not want you to suffer, Mm. that can change the way you interact with the world Mm -hmm. and other people and other people's bodies. Right. It's so helpful to think of that through a recovery lens too, because we're always at war with our bodies when we're going through eating disorder recovery, or at least it feels like it. Yes. And, you know, I think a turning point for me was years ago, before I ever studied polyvagal theory and had any sort of biological explanation for this. But when I realized that no matter what we do, even if it's enacting disordered thoughts or behaviors in an eating disorder, it's done from a place of trying to feel okay. Mm -hmm. And so that just immediately invites compassion and it immediately invites a different way of relating to ourselves, not like we're problems to be fixed, but we're we're these sensitive, emotional beings who are driven to feel safe and connected and to have a sense of belonging. And that no matter how screwed up a thought or an action might seem, it comes from that desire to just feel okay. For me, that changed everything Mm. because then it stopped vilifying the eating disorder. It stopped vilifying a certain way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it sort of gives a blanket benefit of the doubt to us, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like a baseline first step towards self-compassion when you can view it that way as like everything I have created within this eating disorder was rooted in 
wisdom or trying to feel better in some sort of way. Right. So when we think about that, we can have a little bit more compassion for ourselves and how we arrive to this place instead of beating ourselves up. Right. And potentially where these strong emotions got wired together with these disordered behaviors, I was at a different place in my emotional and mental development and didn't have the capacity to do something more nurturing for my body. But by the time I did have that capacity or could start to learn to have that capacity, the neural pathways were so well-worn, plus the genetic you know, predisposition, plus the environmental factors that kind of nudge us in a certain direction, then it becomes a different way of looking at it. But it also reinforces like, oh, so I've basically practiced being disordered in this way. Mm. So if I practiced something different, that would start to take hold. Right. Right. It makes it less magical. Like I just have to figure out a way to like stop doing this thing and start doing this thing. Mm -hmm. What if it were just about like, a 15 degree course correction that you then commit to remembering as best as you can and also putting the conditions in place that give you the best chance of recognizing when you can course correct, like just the basic body care, sleep, all of the medications, preventive medical care, all these things, you know, then it it just gives you a different way of looking at the whole process as like a practice. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And it feels so more manageable when you think of it as a 15 degree course, correct, than like a 180 overnight kind of a deal. So that's so interesting. And I can tell as you're talking, you're referring to kind of your own story. So I'm really curious about that now. And I'd love to hear you dive into kind of what your disordered relationship with food and body looked like. I know alcohol was also part of that. I'd love to hear about that. And how did this healing process look for you? It's ongoing. (laughs) It really is. It's ongoing. You know, I'm a pretty sensitive person who didn't quite fit, you know, growing up. And I don't know if you noticed this too, but like a lot of the people that I work with were sort of like the black sheep in their family. Like they were different Mm -hmm. somehow, which I think is really telling about how we try to adapt to that lack of feeling a belonging. Mm -hmm. We try to shape ourselves toward belonging. You know, I grew up on Long Island with a very just normalized dieting world. You know, I can't even really like capture the feelings that come over me when I start to think about like the bread that only had like 40 calories in it. Mm-hmm. And the artificial sweeteners and the off limits sort of halo around peanut butter, where I would just like at times float through the kitchen and just unscrew the top and just smell it and then try to just like put it back. I mean, it's very strange, you know? Right. And I did not know that there was an option. I didn't realize that there was, you know, any other way of being. I'm also a taller person. And so I think that there's messages that I received about like femininity 
And like, so if you're going to be a bigger female, you really need to be thinner so that the bigness doesn't get out of control. You're preaching to the choir, sister. I'm like close to six feet tall. So that was a huge part of my eating disorder. I didn't want to be, well, first of all, I feel like I weighed more than most people on average because I was, so if people are talking about weights, I was like, well, that's out of reach for me. Yeah, that's out of reach for me. I'm confused. And I was very much wrapped into the whole thin ideal being the perfect vision of a woman in the male gaze. That was a huge part for me. So trying to be small, even though my body is like actually on average, a lot naturally larger than like your average girl. And the millions of little ways in which those messages and those expectations and those standards get in, it reaches everything. Like walking in the city as a kid, being afraid of stepping on like the cellar doors mm. that go to the basement of the restaurants and stuff like that because it might yeah. make a loud noise. Oh my gosh. That would be yeah. indicative of a heavy person. The boys whose growth were, you know, was lagging behind the girls who were always shorter than me with my model of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman of like, well, okay, so I could be with someone who's shorter than me as long as I look like a statue. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you all of the different ways in which it just infiltrated my mind and it really didn't leave a lot of room for other things. I mean, I'm going to be 48 in December Mm. and I feel like I'm discovering like things that I didn't even think to try when I was younger because I was so focused on being what I was told I should be. Mm. And that takes up so much effort and money and time you know, I mean, in one way we're infinite and in another way, we're very finite. You know, there's only 24 hours in a day. If I'm, you know, playing with my little Barbie head, putting on makeup, it might never occur to me to pick up a guitar. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I hear you a million percent in this way too, because I've just started picking up things that I never even considered. I took guitar lessons earlier this year because I was like, I love music. I love it. We should get online and play together. I have my dad. My dad gave me a Martin. He gave me his old Martin. Oh, wow. And I, I've been learning. And I think that this recovery work has actually, in a weird way, because the disorder is so connected with perfectionism and trying to be something that doesn't exist, the recovery work has really encouraged me to like do stuff I'm bad at. On purpose. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. So funny. I love you know? recovery made me so comfortable with my own idea of making mistakes yes. and kind of people don't like the word failure, but kind of failing forward. Like, I love the word failure. I love yeah. that. There's that Pema Chodron book, fail, fail again, fail better. Mm-hmm. This fixation on being good at things. I write this to my son on little notes in his lunchbox sometimes. Remember, we don't love you because of what you're good at. Uh, Love you because you're you, you know? And like, that's what we need to hear. And that's part of my fixation on the Buddhist thinking around like a basic goodness or a Buddha nature is that we are innately, we come out whole and fully deserving of unconditional love. 
Mm. Right. So it's almost like recovery work almost becomes like a reparenting effort. Mm. No shade on the parents who try to guide us toward those ideals because that's what they learned. And that's the pressures that they learned to put on themselves. And that's what they thought would give us a life of happiness, health, ease, all of those things that we wish for each other in like the loving kindness meditation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the surprising thing about recovery work is like the diet mentality expands to affect every aspect of your life. Recovery work expands to affect every aspect of your life. Yeah. I definitely can see how that has been the case in my story too. Just like the growth that you experience in recovery. Yes. You can see, okay, I've reached tangible food freedom, body acceptance, but then you also see the wisdom that you take from it carrying into so many other areas of life. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to now train people how I deserve to be treated. I'm now going to be willing to have other people feel uncomfortable if they violate my boundaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to put their comfort above my own. Yeah. You know, I love that. I hope that people listening use this as motivation to move forward. Cause even though it's scary to disconnect from that ideal you're aiming towards or the control you're desperately needing, like being able to reach the other side, quote, of all of this, there's like a life that you have so many tools and pieces of wisdom that you can apply elsewhere, which is so great. And And the disordered thinking and behavior, again, comes from a place of wanting to feel okay and taking that incredible leap to challenge the idea that certainty, control, these illusory things are going to give us the life we want. We didn't realize we wanted, Mm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like with recovery, this intuitive eating piece, it's kind of hard to access at first at times, although you can start bringing intuition in as soon as you feel connected to it. Mm -hmm. In your case, how did you go from sniffing the peanut butter jar to being an intuitive eater with this mindfulness element involved? Because it's like, I feel like what your book does is it takes the idea of intuitive eating, which is so helpful and it's a beautiful concept and layers, you know, the mindfulness elements everywhere to make it more sustainable. So I'd love to know sort of how you transitioned to being that. And that's a very loaded question. Are you in eating disorder recovery and feel overwhelmed by the chaos and pressure around food and family that the holiday season brings? Join me and the Recovery Collective for the Winter Reset, a free healing experience from December 1st to the 31st designed to reconnect you to peace and rest during the holiday season. Sign up using the link in the show notes to access a free winter reset guidebook, a calendar of live events, and access to our winter reset Facebook group. Let's get comfy and cozy together and focus on recovery this December. 
I think that the mindfulness really is the how to do intuitive eating, mm-hmm. you know, but for me, quitting drinking alcohol was a huge milestone because as that sensitive kind of kid that didn't quite fit and, you know, someone who struggled with like mental health issues and things like that, they just were not addressed the way they are now in school, at home, different things like that because of stigma, because of lack of awareness. You know, I started drinking at a very early age and I was good at it. (laughs) I was so good at it. And I loved it. I looked forward to the get togethers where I knew someone's like older brother was going to get beer or something like that, because I was like, oh, I'll be able to be around people and feel comfortable Mm -hmm. as opposed to I'll be around people and I'll be so nervous about fitting in, or I'll be anxious about saying the right thing, or, you know, all of the anxieties that come up when you're just a sensitive person, or you just, you know, or maybe it's a deeper awareness too, you know, it's a crazy time when you're younger and going through puberty and trying to figure out like identity and things like that. So drinking gave me this, like, it felt like a life raft in a way, but it was taking me further and further out to sea, you know? So I think that the realization, and again, drinking, it's not like this vague thing that we do that doesn't have like influences in our culture. Like drinking is encouraged. It's commercialized. It's about like maximizing your pleasure. It's about getting the most out of different celebrations and things like that. But then I had this awareness, like what if drinking is actually taking away from my life rather than judging it? right? Right. Yeah. And I talked about it for years and got lots of pats on the back for just talking about it. I mean, usually it was like with a cocktail in hand, you know, like maybe I should think about my drinking, but I had this amazing therapist in Boston who was like, what if you just stopped drinking for a little while and saw what happened? And I had tried to do that. And then whenever I came back to drinking, it would swing back and forth. The pendulum would swing back and forth. Not, not unlike the binge restrict pendulum. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But I, I participated in an IOP. Mm -hmm. I made a decision. I'm going to stop. I stopped. My last glass of wine was on my 33rd birthday. Mm -hmm. And I went to an IOP over the holidays. So it took me from December into January, which is one of the harder times to quit. Yeah. You know, but that commitment showing up, being in that room with people for hours a week, you know, served as a bridge. And I got to hear some people talking about similar things. And I was like, okay, this is my new life. Right. And I started to realize that staying with the discomfort that I would medicate with booze was potent. There was something there that was important. And I didn't know what it was, but I, something told me, no, stay there, stay there. And right after I got sober, the dieting really amped up. Interesting. And the shopping amped up. I was like a bargain hunter, you know, <laughs> racks kind of a thing, like getting my conquests. And so that like dry drunk behavior picked up 
And then the more I didn't drink, the more I said, like, how is this different from that? How is the dieting different from the drinking? How is the shopping, the dating, the, you know, binge watching law and order? How is that different from using the behavior and the substance of drinking to change the way I feel? Mm, Yeah. I saw there was no difference. And I think there is a difference between chemical addictions and behavioral addictions, but there was something similar enough that it was worth exploring. And then once I started meditating about a year later, the language that they use immediately struck a chord. You know, Pema Chodron, who's that Buddhist American nun who's like in her 80s now and amazing, her books really spoke to me. You know, the language that she uses in those books just spoke to me so much about becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, which is like a great title of one of her books, leaning into the places that scare you, what to do when things fall apart. I mean, these are all like brilliant titles. I would just buy them for the titles, you know, but these books were then talking about stuff that nobody else seemed to be wanting to talk about, like the kind of dark, yucky, underbelly stuff that I was escaping by drinking. So it it normalized that whole part of being human, which is suffering. Mm. And it sort of turned the idea on its head that avoiding suffering would make me happier. It's like, no, learning to deal with suffering, learning to work with suffering, learning to open and expand and accommodate suffering actually gives you greater access to joy and satisfaction and like everyday magic. Right. So that was key. And then it dawned on me like, oh, staying with the discomfort, that's how you do recovery. Yeah. Oh, I think that's just so relatable when you can identify that thing you're using to avoid discomfort. And then make the conscious choice to sit with that, whether that is an eating disorder behavior, but also all the others you listed, right? I know I've just been dating again for the first time in five years, got out of a relationship. Before that relationship, I was in my mid-20s, like partying, drinking, and that's how I would arrive into relationships, right? And so now I'm in this place of dating where I'm not in that party girl mode at all. So I'm going to date sober (laughs) and my therapist is having a field day because he's like, oh, you're basically going through like the normal adolescent feelings that you avoided. Right. Like the discomfort of maybe feeling insecure or feeling like you're self-conscious about something or not knowing how to like hold someone's hand when you like them, you know, like really basic stuff. And so when you're speaking, I'm just thinking, yeah, like there's been so much healing in my life within the past several months because I'm learning to sit with the discomfort in those moments. And it's really fun. Like it's an extremely empowering phase for me to be in. That sounds amazing. Oh my God. It's it's so fun. Like I was saying this on my last episode, me and my therapist is like, we're high-fiving each other every session. It's like, look how much you're growing. I love it. It's so cute. (laughs) Yeah, it's so cute. But anyway, I think what you're saying is that sitting with discomfort 
was how you started leaning into your intuition, right? Yeah. And I think the more you sit with discomfort, the more you can start to surf it. Yes. You know? Mm -hmm. And so going on dates, not knowing if you have like spinach in your teeth or if you've, you know, said the wrong thing politically or, you know, how much to share, like in any given experience, there are waves of thoughts and energy and emotion and comfort, discomfort, not knowing if you're comfortable or uncomfortable. And it's, again, it's a practice. And our nervous systems are all at different places in terms of how much discomfort we can tolerate. That's really worth stating. And, you know, the same person in different circumstances might be able to tolerate different levels of discomfort. And part of what I feel like meditation teaches us is to discern the discomfort that's worth softening and leaning into and the discomfort that you're not ready for yet. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I'm thinking of it these days as like a form of self-literacy and knowing the self enough to not just forge through when it would be harmful, mm-hmm. but an ability to work with the reality of what's happening in the present moment. Yeah. I'm thinking about when we're talking about discomfort, discomfort in the body, right? Especially in recovery. And I know that there are so many people listening who are really triggered by the discomfort in the body, such as fullness, maybe constipation, migraines, like not even related to eating disorder, but maybe stress and stuff. There's lots of triggers in the body. And I find that the discomfort is not always listened to, honored, surfed, right? As you're saying. And in your book, you talk about introception, like the ability to kind of interpret what the body is saying, what that means to you. Could you kind of share how introception, what that is, and also how mindfulness can be used to almost be less reactive to those body discomfort? Mm -hmm. I think that it's always worth reminding ourselves that we're wired to prefer comfort to discomfort. Yeah. And we can thank that wiring for keeping us alive, right? That's not a problem. But when we become intolerant of discomfort in all its forms, we actually end up miserable, you know, whether it's that we're aggressively pushing away all forms of discomfort or aggressively grasping onto all forms of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so interoception is defined as just the capacity to sense and interpret in real time what's happening in the mm-hmm. body. And then that gives you the potential to then respond to what's actually happening. Because so often with disordered eating, the way we respond is counter to what's actually happening, mm-hmm. right? Like we take an action that if we're, for example, feeling abandoned by someone, rather than addressing whatever caused us to maybe have a disproportionate reaction to a fear of abandonment, rather than addressing that specifically, we kind of double down on a behavior that helps us feel in control, Mm. like restricting or exercising or something like that. 
You know, what I like about looking at interoception is that it doesn't just have to be in terms of like a relationship with food. Maybe that's not a good starting point for some folks. Like maybe we need to do some basic training before we get into the interoception of eating. Like, could you start to relate to the interoception of needing to pee? Right. Because that might be a less judged, a less charged topic. One of my favorite practices has to do with the interoception of lying down and getting ready for sleep at the end of the day. And then just receiving the communications that maybe you can't even put into words because it's simply somatic. Nope, the left side doesn't work. Nope, the right side doesn't work. I need to be on my stomach with my head turned to the left and my right leg up. You know what I'm saying? Like the body is telling you that's interoception too. Mm. And so there are ways that we can prepare ourselves to focus on the interoception of eating that don't have to hit the nerves that might be raw mm-hmm. at first, mm-hmm. you know? A, yeah. And it's a nice way of playing with our own edge. It's a nice way of playing with like, oh, well, you know what? As it turns out, I do have some triggering thoughts about needing to pee because everyone told me I have a bladder the size of a lentil. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like if I need to pee, I need to question whether I need to pee, mm-hmm. right? So maybe we discover things about us, but we can start to work with them a little bit more in that setting and then apply that practice, that training, that muscle memory to the more difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it feels safer to challenge the problematic thoughts around the interoception of needing to pee. And then you can start to challenge the troubling thoughts around the interoception of eating, hunger, fullness, satisfaction, things like that. Mm, I think that's such a beautiful way to start, right? Approaching it in the more neutral circumstances, right? It's respectful of where you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the mindfulness piece stabilizes the nervous system, tends to sort of, if imagine if you have like a remote control and you kind of hit slow-mo, it sort of slows things down a little bit. So that when you do shift into the potentially more triggering work, you can almost like see the interim stages of a reaction as it's happening. And maybe initially you have awareness after you've reacted. And maybe over time, the awareness backs up so that it's happening in real time. Or maybe it even is so attuned to the way that you tend to behave that you can anticipate when you're about to move into a decision point of, do I go down a habitual disordered pathway or do I do that course correction? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a big fan of like self-narration. Oh, Oh, isn't that interesting? I wonder why it's going on. Well, it does bring up this kind of thing and it makes me think of this. You know, you could just kind of stay with the dominoes as each one falls. Mm. So how would the self-narration look like if a person, say, is triggered by eating too much? Mm -hmm. So the self-narration in that moment could be like, okay, I feel it can assess like whether it's reacting to a normal sensation of fullness, something in the neighborhood of a normal sensation of fullness, or something that is actually an uncomfortable fullness. It can reality check, you know, is this me 
like having overeating is a normal part of normal eating, or is this me having a disproportionate reaction to normal fullness? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that you're going to get an answer, yeah. but it can, you know, start to, to create some space around it so that you can explore. Then it could be like, okay, well, this makes sense. You know, I was taught to be afraid of fullness. I was taught to eat as little as possible. I was taught that fullness was a sign of being out of control. So, you know, this experience sort of feels threatening. Like my body senses danger because if I eat to fullness, if I'm in a bigger body, I will be less accepted by the people that give me safety and security. Like, you know, it's sort of like, it is the rational mind sort of talking through what's going on, like making some of the unconscious interoception conscious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Because otherwise, 50 things happen in like a finger snap. Yeah. So that can continue to like, okay, so maybe there were some circumstances in place that made it more likely for me to overeat in this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that I feel like I need right now? Do I feel like I need to distract myself because this feeling of dysregulation is a little overwhelming? Do I need to spend some time with it and maybe journal about it or meditate or speak to someone? You know, do I want to take the step of doing something kind for my body and maybe rubbing my tummy? (laughs) You know, (laughs) not being unkind, you know, consciously, intentionally to my body. So it can take you in different directions. And I do it all the time. You know, I kind of just am always talking to myself. I love that because mindfulness can feel really elusive and a little trippy for people who aren't used to it. Like the whole, I'm the observer of my thoughts thing. Like, sounds great in theory, hard to connect with that as like maybe someone who is more logical or whatever. Right, right. So the whole self-narration thing, it's clearly a form of mindfulness, mm-hmm. but you're speaking it aloud make almost feels more tangible. Right. More, right. And it's kind of staying with that razor's edge of the present moment. Yeah. Oh, this is happening right now. Oh, I'm feeling this way, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's too bad that mindfulness has become this sort of lofty. Yeah, thing. it's so grounded. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's such an active process of staying with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just, I mean, don't get me started on all the ways that meditation have been like, has been commodified to be almost like an aspirational aspect of life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this great article, I think it was called Enlightenment is a Male Fantasy. And it was <laughs> all about this idea that the pursuit of enlightenment is like this heady thing that if you have somebody else making the tortillas, you can do. But, you know, the women in the traditional like Buddhist communities had this sort of like connection with everyday enlightenment of like, you know, making the tortillas, you know, like doing the stuff, being right where they were, not sitting, you know, and meditating for hours and hours and hours a day in this sort of like way that's totally removed from reality. Yeah. Yeah. 
This is part of why I really love the Buddhism that Pema Chodron speaks about, because it's about meditation in everyday life. It's not meditation for transcendence. It's meditation to be right here. Mm. You know? That does sound so much more grounding and real than what I typically hear meditation is. Like for a while, I was stuck in this space. I talk about this a lot with my community when we do our meditations, but I used to expect some grand thing to happen every time I meditated. Like I'm struck with a vision or I feel like totally relaxed. And it's like, that's not the point. You know, it's connecting to stillness, whatever that looks like in that moment. At least that's what I'm learning is more appropriate when it comes to what a meditation practice is. Yeah, it can do for you. It's funny because those are actually thought of as obstacles to Mm. practice. Those like realizations and things like that, those other worldly experiences, they're actually considered obstacles to practice. And it's not a problem, right? Working with obstacles is the path, but the way you respond to, you know, my meditation teacher says, if the Buddha himself comes and sits down facing you and says, you are the next Buddha, the response is thinking, say to yourself thinking and return to feeling the breath. <laughs> like that's it. It's the most boring. It's like brushing your teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a good boring. It's not a feel good boring, but it's the type of boring that creates reality and creates an appetite for reality. Mm. So you're not like sitting here thinking you need to be somewhere else in life to find happiness. Mm-hmm. or to be successful or whatever. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. That feels, it almost feels like the parallel between like dieting, which is this lofty dream-oriented BS outcome that you're constantly seeking, you know, if you're stuck in a disorder, right? Versus intuitive eating, which is all about the here and now and groundedness. And a lot of uncertainty. Yes. Part of the appeal of dieting and the disorder is that there are clear rules to follow. And if you follow those rules, you know you're successful. Part of the barrier, I think, for a lot of people with intuitive eating is that you don't have that mathematical certainty anymore. Right? What is a five on the hunger scale? (laughs) Right? So it doesn't matter. What matters is, I'm sure enough, I'm at my sweet spot of hunger where food tastes good and it doesn't feel chaotic to eat. And that's good enough for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do this perfectly. Right. And that's bringing it all back full circle, which is being okay with sitting with discomfort. And in this case, it's that uncertainty. And that is an aha moment for me because it makes sense why there's so many people who are hesitant to reach intuitive eating because how do you face that? If you're not comfortable with uncertainty, intuitive eating's like terrifying. I know. And so isn't it interesting that you can then get to a place where you're like, oh, I see what's happening right now. I feel agitated because I don't feel like I can know for sure 
what's in that food that was prepared by somebody else, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, but the problem is not the food. The problem is the belief that I need to know or to be in control in order to feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's this sort of like ability to witness yourself, to kind of call yourself in, I would say, as opposed to out, because that's always feels kind of aggressive of like, you know, uh, this is a habit. This is a tendency. This is a natural human proclivity to want to know mm-hmm. and to hold on tight to that knowledge and letting it go is really hard. It's hard for everyone, but it's something that you can get better at. Mm-hmm. You can learn how to do it and you can practice it. Mm-hmm. And that's how mindfulness comes in with making it more sustainable because there is that self-literacy you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That gives you a little bit more clues and certainty, not necessarily, but whenever I know my body signals, I feel safer in what choices to make, right? Right, because you're almost building a library of data. Mm -hmm. You're building a library of your own lived experiences, not some influencer's, you know, experience that you can reference, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's like, oh, last Rosh Hashanah. I had this experience this time. I'm going to go into it this way and see what happens, mm-hmm. you know, or I know that on Tuesdays when I have back-to-back appointments, I can fail to eat regularly. And so I'm going to take some steps. It might not be the most spectacular meal or snack of my life, but it'll be some combination of protein, carb, and fat that will keep me satisfied until I can put a little more thought and effort into what I'm eating, mm-hmm. you know? But the main difference is the fact that it's a data, it's a library of your experience, your somatic lived experience, as opposed to guidelines and measurements and monitoring and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. And it's so true that it's your own lived experience and that's how you can f- start to build that sense of safety that maybe you haven't felt with intuitive eating, but the more you practice, the more you can get comfortable with what that looks and feels like for you. Uh, So, wow, Jenna, this has been such a fun conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and we're coming up to the end of time. So before I let you go, I'm really curious, like, what is your hope for those who read your book that's coming out very soon, it might be out by the time this comes up. What is your hope? What's your intention or your hope that those who read take away? What would you like that to be? I think I would love for people to make certain connections for themselves, like that fighting with their basic biology and humanity will never really give them the experience that they're looking for. And at the same time to normalize why they fight, right? I mean, I can't remember if I said in this book, I think I said in the last one, this idea, like, I'm sure you have plenty of original ideas, but this was not one of them, right? This was something that was implanted and then you learn to use against yourself. So, I mean, the two other things, one would be this sort of paradox of the more you care for yourself in a mindful, present, attuned way, 
the more you can actually show up for other people Mm. and the need for community. And I'm so happy to hear that you have a community. That's also something I'm working on for the new year is creating a community where people can connect with one another, because I think that's what keeps programs like Weight Watchers and OA in business is that people have a chance to connect with one another and they can talk about things that they don't talk about otherwise, like food and bodies and insecurities and things like that. I don't imagine that they're talking in those settings the same way they would talk in the settings created by you and me and other people in our field. But I think that we've learned to settle for that. Mm. I think that intuitive eating and recovery, true recovery-based communities can empower us to normalize our experience and to work with ourselves as we are so that we move in a direction that's compatible with our values. Mm. Yes, I feel the same way about community too. It's the best. I'm excited to hear about that when your community finally comes out. So as far as how people can get your book, access your book. I'd love for you to share like where people can find you. And yeah. And also we are giving away three books to the listeners here. So thank you so much for that. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. You can find information about, I mean, the book is on Amazon, like everything else, but if you want to not buy from Amazon, there are some other links to it on my website, which is jennahollenstein.com. If you go under the books tab, I think there are like links to some independent bookstores and things like that, or you could buy it directly from the publisher. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my website is where I have a lot of information. And then I've been making a concerted effort to challenge my own version to social media and to have some sort of presence on Instagram and just put out (laughs) something of value to people, you know, so I am committed. I have promised my assistant that I will do this because she's been after me for years. So that's another way to kind of keep in touch and also to see like what I'm working on, what I'm exploring in my, you know, with my client work or other projects and things like that. And hopefully it's a source of community in a way as well, you know, because I think social media can be a cesspool or it could be like a real source of supportive community. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. All right. So you've heard it, everyone. These are the great ways to stay connected with Jenna. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a true pleasure. And I look forward to staying in touch with you now that we've talked. (laughs) Me too. This was great. Thank you. You're so welcome.